So Jesus, we know that you are in this room right now, and we ask that you help us to hear from you, talk to you, be changed by you, leave focused only on you through the power of your word and sacrament. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, hello, 945. Good to uh, see all of you. Uh, one of my best memories is the first time I ever went to Hawaii. I, I was an adult when I went, uh, and people all my life had told me how beautiful it was, how warm the water was, but I couldn't picture it. Because, you know, being from the Northwest, my idea of ocean water is knife-like pain digging into your skin, right? So when I went and I put my feet in the water for the first time, I was stunned. I was like, why is the water so warm? Did, did a little kid have an accident nearby? Like, what's wrong, right? And then I sat on the beach and had a pina colada. And that's when I learned an important truth. It is better to be in Hawaii than to hear about it. Right? Especially from obnoxious people in their Facebook posts. And look at me, we're having, oh yeah, good for you. Yeah, how nice for you, right? Hawaii is not a metaphor for relaxation or the perfect pina colada. It's real and it's meant to be experienced as real, physically. So is Jesus, real and meant to be experienced as real. The problem is sometimes Jesus doesn't seem very real, does he? Like, where is he? And we don't always experience his presence. That's why Jesus gives us physical things to do to make faith in him more real. And one of those things is communion, which we just read about and just heard about. And communion is decidedly physical, right? It's tastable, seeable, smellable, feelable, right? It's, it's, it's not very spiritual that way. It's very solid. It's very down to earth. It's very material. Because, see, we are physical beings, and what that means is we learn things most deeply, not when we think about them, but when we do them physically. So for instance, when I was six years old, I learned two things. I learned how to ride a bike, and I learned how to read. It was a banner year for me. <laughs> and and, and, and now, now, all these years later, I cannot remember what I read at six years old, except for maybe I do not like green eggs and ham, I do not like them, Sam I am. But the only re reason I remember that is because I read it to my kids over and over and over again. So I don't really remember anything I read when I was six, but I still remember how to ride a bike, even if it's been decades, right? The bike was physical, and because I'm a physical being, I remember it better. What we experience in the body, we remember forever. What we experience in the body, we remember forever. Even scientifically, it makes a stronger connection in our brain, which is why Jesus gives us communion. But what does it mean, right? Like, what does this mean? And that's the whole sermon series we're in. Christian things we say and do, but sometimes don't know why we're saying them and doing them. And this is an educational sermon series, kind of how, because there are things you just need to know, right, to, about, to make faith more real. So, in preparation for this Sermon, I asked my kids, what should I say about commun communion? And immediately, the first thing one of them said is, it's weird. <laughs> and if you think about it, it is, right? Like, like, if you had never been to church before, ever, and by the way, a lot of people in our culture have never set foot in a church, and all the data shows, soon it will be the majority of people in our culture have never, ever, ever once set foot in a church and let's say you wandered in one day during communion and you heard the pastor say, this is my body given for you, eat it. <laughs> like you would be so freaked out, right? Like you'd go home, you'd call all your friends, you'd say, I went to church today just to see what these Christians are like. It's worse than we thought. They are literally drinking the Kool-Aid. One of my kids said, you got to clarify this because little kids could get confused and think that we're eating people. 
And in fact, that's one of the reasons that the Romans persecuted Christians. They thought they were cannibals because of communion. So why do we do this? And some of you have probably wondered, why do we do this, right? Like, what is this about? And maybe you don't know what to do with that time when we, you know, once a month we have communion. You're like, what do I do with all this time? Like, why does it take so long? And even if you do understand communion, hopefully this sermon will help it go a little bit deeper. Because it's more than just remembering Jesus' death and resurrection. It's that for sure, right? And we need reminders of Jesus' grace because we can forget But it's more than a reminder, more than just kind of a holy post-it note on the refrigerator of your soul. Reminder, Jesus died for you. It's more than that. So I'm going to give you a top five list of cool things about communion that help us know Jesus better, make him more real. I was going to do a top ten list, but I figured if I came back from vacation with a ten-point sermon, y'all would despair. So... Top five, and we're going to do this as you do. You start with the bottom, right? You start with the, in the top ten list, start with the bottom. So number five, cool thing about communion, it tangibly demonstrates Jesus is with us always. Because, see, we believe that Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is, is, is present when we celebrate communion. Jesus is here. Jesus is in the room. Do you know that? Jesus is in the room right now. And we can interact with him. He is really here. And one of the benefits of doing communion over and over and over again, once a month or once a week in our 6 o'clock service, one of the benefits is that say one Sunday you come in, you're having a terrible week, horrible week, you take communion. It's a way of experiencing Jesus saying, I'm with you when things are hard. And maybe a month later you come and you're having a great week and you come and you take communion again. And it's a way of Jesus saying, and when things are going well, I'm with you then too. Right? When you do this over and over and over for years, you experience Jesus in various parts of your life saying, when you're high and when you're low, when you're surrounded by friends and when you're alone, when you get the promotion or you get into the college that you wanted, and when you didn't, I am with you. Always. And not just individually, but corporately, together. When your church is going great and when it isn't. When things are good in the country, but also when there's racial tension and shootings and the weirdest election in living memory, oh my goodness, and it is just getting weirder, right? And we're going to actually talk about how we thrive through all of this after Labor Day. But today, communion is a reminder in all of this, high, low, everything in between, I am with you still. I do not leave. I do not give up. I do not abandon you ever. And I am still working things out for good no matter how awful they are. Just like I took a cross, pretty darn awful, and used it to purchase your salvation, I am with you still. That's what we remember in communion. Which brings me to number four on our top five cool things about communion. I'll spend more time on this one. Communion is grace you can eat. Grace you can taste, smell, feel, see. It involves four of our five senses. And if you include the preacher's words beforehand, all five. It includes hearing as well. And if we did communion the way my daughter suggests, it would also include hearing. Because several years ago, she asked me about the bread that we break during the communion. And she said, you got to get a new loaf every time. So that's expensive. She said, you should just use the same loaf over and over. And I said, well, I need to break it. That's part of the ritual. And she said, well, just put a piece of Velcro on it and you could put it back together. <laughs> and I said, but it would make a, a, a huge sound when I, when I pulled it apart. And she said, well, someone could sing to cover the sound. Like, and what should concern you right now is, is that I actually engage this conversation as though it were a viable possibility. <laughs> I'm like, Velcro, hmm, it might work, right? 
But it kind of makes a point. Communion is something we don't think about. It's not, we can feel it, smell it, taste it, hear it, experience with all five senses that we are forgiven. Because grace can be kind of an ethereal concept, right? Like we know that, you know, God loves us because, you know, he's God and theologically he has to, I guess, right? But, but we still have guilt and we still have shame, which means Jesus' forgiveness has not gotten from our heads to our hearts. It's not real for us. Sometimes I feel bad about myself because of something I've done or something I didn't do that I should have done. And it seems like I should not get away with that, like a price needs to be paid or there's no fairness in the world. Right? And the fact that there are now online confession sites and even apps for your smartphone where you can anonymously confess sin shows our culture's deep need to feel forgiven and released from shame. We've kicked Jesus out, but we didn't kick shame out. Right? But here's the problem. It doesn't quite get you there, does it? Because there's no app that can make you feel forgiven. It's got to be personal. So God came in the person of Jesus to make it clear that we are forgiven, okay? He didn't Snapchat that one. Jesus says, I will pay the price that deep down you feel needs to be paid, and I will do it in such a dramatic way. I'm going to die so that you know for sure you're forgiven. He wrote our forgiveness in red so we wouldn't forget it. And see, Christianity is for moral failures like me. If you do not think you are a moral failure, you are not a Christian. And in fact, one of the Presbyterian liturgies for communion says, let the proud and the self-sufficient stay away. Communion is for people who know they need Jesus. And you see that in the text we read about the first communion, Jesus' last supper with his disciples. And it would have been a Passover meal. Passover was when the Jews celebrated God delivering them from slavery in Egypt, just like Jesus delivers us from sin. And Passover meals had specific things you said in specific places, but Jesus departs from the script. And it says, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus would have handed the bread to the person in the seat of honor. And do you know who was in the seat of honor at the Last Supper? Judas, the one who would betray him. Radical, scandalous grace. And Jesus knew that, knew that we are prone to forget that grace, so he gave us something that we do that involves all of our senses because what we do in the body is remembered forever. He gave us communion. Taste that you are forgiven. And notice the verbs I've underlined. Take, eat, give. Take, eat, give. There's another time in the Bible when those three verbs show up long before Jesus, Adam and Eve, when they decided to disobey God and eat the fruit he told them not to eat. The text says this, Eve took some, take, and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, doing Lord knows what, right? Rebelled against God, did things their own way. That caused division and wars and hate and all kinds of stuff. Take, eat, give. It shows up in the garden, but at communion, Jesus undoes the original taking, eating, and giving to purchase our forgiveness. And Jesus didn't give us a poem to memorize, to understand his grace. He didn't give us an essay. He gave us a meal, something that we do, not just think about. Jesus is saying, I want you to feel, taste, eat, smell, experience that you are forgiven. And he says, this is the new covenant sealed in my blood. And a covenant was the most sacred promise you could make. Jesus says, I promise you, I have forgiven you. Whether you feel it or not, I promise I've forgiven you. Whether you like it or not, you are forgiven. You have no choice in the matter. Not a darn thing you can do about it. God loves you. You can't fix that. Can't change it. Because it's not based on what we do. It's based on what he did. 
Now, our role in that is to do what people do when someone promises you something. If a reliable friend, and Jesus is reliable, says, I promise I'll be at your party, you believe him, right? And if a friend makes a promise, you make plans around that promise. He says he'll be there, I'll be there too. You kind of arrange your life around the promise. Jesus promises that we are forgiven, makes it tangible through communion. Our role is to believe that and arrange our life around it. Which brings me to number three on our top five cool things about communion list. Number three is communion is also about community. See, communion and community have the same root word, common union, common unity. That's why we don't do this alone. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul chastises people in the city of Corinth for how they do communion. And he says this, your meetings do more harm than good. When you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, so it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He goes on, and we discover that they're actually coming drunk to communion. So clear issues in in the Corinthian church, right? And then he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Now, this usually gets interpreted as if you're not solemn enough, if you're not sober enough at community. Communion. If you don't feel miserable enough about your sins, then you shouldn't take communion. That's not what it means at all. Because the context for this is a church where there's all kinds of broken relationships. And Paul's saying, man, you got to fix that. Because this is about community. Now, that doesn't mean that if there's a relationship that's tense in your life right now, you can't take communion. It does mean you need to resolve to fix it. In Jesus' day, the highest form of acceptance you could show someone was to eat with them, which is why he leaves us a meal. Because it's about relationship with him and with each other. Which brings me to the number two thing on our top five list. Number two cool thing about communion is it's a celebration of joy. Jesus says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So he's pointing to heaven, referring to heaven. And do you know that heaven is most frequently described as a wedding banquet? That's one of the most frequent descriptions of heaven, a wedding banquet. The book of Revelation says this, Let us rejoice and be glad, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Lamb is Jesus. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the reason that heaven is described as a wedding banquet, a wedding supper, is because in heaven God will satisfy every hunger that we have, just like in a real meal. That hunger for love, that hunger for adventure, that hunger for friendship, it will be met, you will not be empty. And communion points to that. That feast. Pastor Tim Keller says, Communion is the hors d'oeuvres of your future joy. And when we take communion, it is God's promise that he is unconditionally committed to getting us from here to there. Now, in the early church, communion would have been a full-on meal. Lots and lots of food, lots and lots of wine, as a reminder that, that Jesus fills us and fulfills us. And now, you know, these days, for convenience and economy, it's, it's, it's just a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice, right? And that makes sense for lots of reasons, but it really does lose some of the symbolism, right? that this is about a celebration of joy. It's sort of like a woman I heard of who took her five-year-old daughter to church one day instead of sending her to Sunday school, and it was communion. And they served it in those tiny cups, you know, that we do in the sanctuary, those tiny little cups and those little teeny little bits of bread, right, like we do over in the sanctuary. The girl turned to her mom and said, the snack in children's church is way better, <laughs> and we get a lot more juice. Now, there are practical reasons for the little bit of bread and the little, you know, little cups, right? But symbolically, right, symbolically it just misses, right? Like the blood of Christ eked out in tiny sanitary little portions for you. 
Presbyterians, right? As I've said before, sometimes I just want to bring in a vat of grape juice, hook a fire hose to it, and douse you all in it, right? Like the grace of God poured out like Niagara Falls. It's a celebration. Now, in Presbyterian context, we, we kind of get solemn at communion time, and that's fine. It can help you pray and reflect. But just remember, theologically, this is a wedding, not a funeral, Theologically, this is a celebration. This is a wedding, not a funeral. That's why we don't, we don't say that we observe communion. We what? We celebrate communion. And do you know what the pastor who presides over communion is called, technically? The celebrant. In other words, the celebrator. Like, I am so putting that on my business card. Right? Like, Pastor Dudley, the celebrator. You know? Like, and in lots of churches, people sing and clap and even dance. I've been in Alexis church. When you do communion, I bet there's some, there's some life, isn't there? Yeah, okay. See, in, in lots of churches, there's singing, there's clapping, even dancing, dancing down the aisles. So we discussed this as a staff, and we felt that it would be good for all of us to expand our comfort zone. So today, we're going to dance. <laughs> some of you are like, yay! Some of you are like, oh, no, I'm so scared. We're not going to dance, so unless you want to, and then you're perfectly welcome to. But maybe, you know, maybe if you don't want to dance, just like do an inward dance in your soul, which is the only kind of dancing Presbyterians ever do, right? It is meant to be a celebration, all of which brings us to the number one cool thing about communion. Communion shows that God is a down-to-earth God who makes the ordinary holy. Bread, juice becomes a sacrament, ordinary to holy. Communion reminds us that God did not look down his holy nose at our earthy, sinful physicality. But he was willing to come in the flesh and join us in it. Because, see, we believe Jesus' spirit inhabits the physical bread and juice, which points to the incarnation when God took on very real physical flesh. He got dirty. He was tired. He had aches and pains. Rather than insist that we become more spiritual to live up to his expectations, God became more physical to join us in our world. And there is no other God. There, you can search history. You can search all of philosophy. Go ahead, read every religious text ever written. There is no other God who does this but Jesus. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but when I was a little kid, my family used to go to Cannon Beach with a couple of other families, and one of them was the Munsons, okay, not their real name, but kind of close. And Mrs. Munson didn't like all the sand and all the dirt and all the mess of the beach, so she made her son, Edwin, not his real name, but kind of close, she made Edwin stay inside all day and read books. Meanwhile, my brother and I would spend all day in the water building sandcastles, body surfing, even in October in Cannon Beach, right? We'd come in wet, dirty, noses running, and Mrs. Munson would go, Ugh, boys, boys are so dirty. Mm. <laughs> you know what communion means? Communion means that God is not Mrs. Munson. Amen. Okay, that should have gotten an amen. Okay, any amen. Oh, yeah. Any amen that... Alexis, they get it. God is not Mrs. Munson, okay? God, God, God is not like looking down at us going, ooh, your life is so, ooh, messy, humans, ick. That's not God, right? God goes to the beach with us, Hallelujah. enters the messy place and makes it beautiful, enters the ordinary stuff and makes it extraordinary. Bread, juice becomes sacrament. The goal of every other religion is to escape the physical and attain the pure spiritual. But with Jesus, it is the absolute other way around. The spiritual invades the physical. That's what the incarnation is all about. 
And when the spiritual invades the physical, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. That's why Jesus didn't leave some elaborate ritual where you needed like gold and jewels and diamonds. No, he left us the most ordinary thing, a meal. We have several a day. And not even a fancy meal. You know, like the kind you get at those shishi restaurants, right? Super pretentious descriptions of food, right? Like you got the menu, you can hardly see it, and, you know, lobster roulade. You're like, what is that? So you read the description, except it doesn't help. You know, crispy brick dough filled with fresh lobster and a port reduction sauce and harvested baby microgreens. You're like, why'd they take the baby ones? I don't even know what that is, right? <laughs> so, so like, and then the waiter comes, and you're like, uh, could I have a corn dog? You know, like chicken nuggets. I mean, at least in eastern Washington, that's what we do. Okay, Jesus didn't leave us a fancy pants meal like that, right? He left us the most ordinary food, bread, wine. But when Jesus invades them, they become holy sacraments that show us the power of God's spirit to work in our everyday normal lives to make them sacred and holy. A conversation with a friend where you are honest and open, that becomes a sacrament. Sacred ground, man. Sex in marriage, when it is surrounded by commitment, holy ground. School, work, when the Spirit of God enters them, they become sacred moments. Let me give you an example. One of the weirdest things that ever happened to me was when I worked as a chaplain during seminary in a hospital. And one night I was paged at 2 in the morning. And a woman had just died and her 45-year-old son was just freaking out. He had lived with her his whole life. They had come from Alaska to seek medical treatment for her. When they got here, even though she was the sick one, he was so dependent on her, she had to check him into his hotel room. That's how dependent he was. Very dysfunctional. Though we all have stuff we're overly dependent on, don't we? We all got our stuff, and that was his stuff, right? So I got there, and the doctor was trying to tell him that his mom had died, but he kept changing the subject. He'd talk about sports, pizza places in Alaska, you name it. Just couldn't handle the fact that this woman he'd relied on for so long was dead. Finally, the doctor said to me, you deal with him, chaplain. I just walked out of the room. So I talked to him for a while, got nowhere. Finally, I took him into the room where his mother's body was. And there was some blood, it was kind of messy. And for two hours I sat in that room, I tried to get him to acknowledge it. He would not. Kept talking about sports, pizza in Alaska, on and on. Finally, I grabbed his hands after two hours, and I said, your mother is dead. You have got to face this. And he was silent for a while, and he said, I know. I see her there. And then he started telling his mom all the things he'd always wanted to tell her, that he loved her, that she was his hero, on and on. And then he said, I am so scared, I don't know how I'm going to function without her. And I talked to him about how Jesus is always with us, no matter what. His concept of a God was God's up there. He doesn't come down here. God just stays up there, leaves us alone. And I said, no, 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 no. Jesus is God come here in the flesh. Jesus invades the ordinary and messy physicality of our lives, and he makes it holy. And then we prayed together, standing at the bedside of his dead mother. And when he left, he was rational again. He was lucid. And he did something he'd never done before. He did something without his mother and checked himself out of his hotel room. Now, he has a long way to go. He had a long way to go before he was whole. But that was a start. And it was a holy moment. You could feel God in the room. And I was glad that I don't serve a God who who just remains up in heaven but that I serve a God who will step into an ugly situation, a messy situation, a freaked out 45-year-old man, a very scared 25-year-old seminary student, and bring healing and wholeness and grace and holiness. 
That moment was like communion. The ordinary made holy, just like bread and juice, when the Spirit of God comes, become a sacrament. So as we come to communion today, I'd invite you, this is, use this time to talk to Jesus. That's part of what it's for. He is in the room. Maybe confess some sins and ask him to make his forgiveness seem real to you. Or ask him to step into a messy place in your life. Or maybe just a boring, ordinary place and transform it. Use this time to reflect, pray, connect. Because see, communion is not for super spiritual people. It is for the exact opposite. People who aren't spiritual at all, but they know that they need Jesus. And if that's you, you are invited. You do not need to belong to this church. You don't even have to be a good person. You can be a terrible person. All you need is to want to know Jesus a little bit more. Jesus, who on the night that he was betrayed, threw a banquet and invited his closest friends. And he said, this bread is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Have some bread. You're forgiven. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, I want to make this crystal clear. I want to make it clear so you never forget. I want to make it visceral. I want to make it physical. This cup is the cup of my salvation. Your forgiveness purchased by my blood. Drink from this, all of you. Every time we do this, we are celebrating. Guys, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus loves us, that our sins are forgiven, that he conquered death, that we are free, and we celebrate that he's coming again someday to make this world right. And today, you've heard, some of you heard me say this before, because this is a celebration, today, you know, maybe as you come, maybe just take an extra piece of bread or two or three as a reminder that the grace of God is always more abundant than you think it is, and it's always a little hard to swallow. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for your radical grace, and thank you for this celebration. You are here. Lord, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you set this time aside from an ordinary to a sacred purpose. Lord, help us to engage with you, connect with you, be changed by you, leave just like you, focused on you. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.